When Seth and I spoke back in December about the possibility of preaching during this difficult time in our church, I immediately began thinking and praying about what to preach on. Over the years, I've always joked with Pastor Chris and told him that he really has the easiest job in the whole world. I'll tell him, Chris, all you have to do is get up there and open up the Bible, read it, and then say what it says. And that's all in good fun, of course, until you're the one who has to stand up here, open up the Bible, read it, and then try and say what it says. The other thing that I've always inquired, uh, pleaded, he would tell you, I've begged him, uh, Chris, to do is to preach through the Old Testament book of Isaiah, which is my favorite book in the Bible. Think about all the sermons that we could get out of the book of Isaiah we started our journey through the book of Hebrews on January of last year, and with a few minor detours here and there, we finished up in September. Thirteen chapters in the book of Hebrews gave us eight months of sermons. Does anyone know how many chapters the book of Isaiah has? 66, that's right. If you do the math, that's about three and a half to four years worth of sermons. My son is currently in elementary school. We could study the book of Isaiah from now until he's in high school. But before anyone worries, they aren't going to let me do a three and a half year sermon series on the book of Isaiah, nor do I want to. But what I hope to do today is give us a 40,000 foot overview of the book. I want to explore what makes the book unique and why it's one of my favorites. We want to establish the historical context in which it was written. And then we want to examine the important message that it contained for the nation of Judah. To start off, we want to look at what makes the book of Isaiah unique. Why do I believe it's worth studying? There are many reasons, but here are two key ones I'd like to offer for our consideration. Number one, the book, the prophet Isaiah, is quoted or alluded to more than any other prophet by the writers of the New Testament. Isaiah is quoted or alluded to 21 times in the Gospels, five times in the book of Acts, 25 times throughout the writings of Paul, six times in 1 Peter, four times in Revelation, and once in the book of Hebrews. Noted Bible commentator Dr. J. Vernon McGee beautifully states that Isaiah is woven throughout the New Testament as a brightly colored thread is woven into a beautiful pattern. The second reason that I believe Isaiah is unique and worthy of our study is because the book is really like a snapshot or an overview of the entire Bible all in one book. Sort of a mini Bible within the Bible, if you will. Now we already noted that the book of Isaiah has 66 chapters in it. Does anyone know how many books of the Bible there are? That's right, there's 66. Now. We know that Isaiah didn't write the scroll of Isaiah with chapter and verse in mind, but I want to share this story and help us to see how God has carefully protected the words he inspired the authors of the Bible to write. Before the year 1946, the oldest known manuscript of the scroll of Isaiah in existence was dated to 895 A.D., then in 1946, a significant discovery known as the Dead Sea Scrolls happened. If you're not familiar with the story, let me give you the simplified version. A young shepherd boy was out in the field with his flocks, and as young boys love to do, he was throwing rocks. 
And he threw a rock up into this one cave and he heard this shattering sound, which clearly wasn't the rock bouncing off the walls of the caves. So he went up into the caves and he discovered all of these clay jars and pots that were filled with scrolls of ancient Hebrew text and biblical literature. And over the next 10 years, archaeologists unearthed 15,000 of these partial and full fragments and scrolls of ancient text. And one of the things they discovered in there was an entire scroll of Isaiah. When they dated it, they dated it back to the year 200 BC, which was over a thousand years earlier than the previously oldest manuscript in existence. And when they took these two texts and compared them side by side, they found exactly nine errors, nine letters scattered throughout the scroll, none of which changed anything significant about the message. So when the scroll or manuscript of Isaiah was assigned chapter and verse later on in history, we can trust that God, as he has throughout time, was working in the hearts and minds of those men to help us understand and see more clearly the importance of this sacred text. Now what's even more amazing is how these chapters are divided into two distinct styles or messages. In the first 39 chapters of the book of Isaiah, the emphasis in the tone is about the holiness of God, government, law, and judgment. If you wanted to sum up the first 39 chapters of Isaiah in one word, you might choose the word condemnation. Let's look at verses 21 and 24 in chapter 1. Isaiah 1, 21. How the faithful city has become a whore, she who was full of justice, righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. Verse 24, therefore the Lord declares the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. Sounds like a book that we really want to dive into and just study for the next three and a half years, doesn't it? So we noted that Isaiah, the first 39 chapters, have this emphasis and theme. Out of the 66 books of the Bible, how many of those are in the Old Testament? That's right, there's 39. And what's the primary message of the Old Testament? It's the holiness of God and law, government, and the absolute futility of those things to reconcile a sinful people with a holy God. Now, conversely, when you come to the last 27 chapters of the book of Isaiah, or chapters 40 through 66, the whole emphasis and tone of Isaiah's words change, and they become those of love and grace and salvation. In fact, the word salvation is used 33 times by the prophets in the Old Testament, and 26 of those mentions of the word salvation are found in the book of Isaiah. If you wanted to sum up the last 27 chapters of Isaiah in one word, you might choose the word comfort. Listen to how Isaiah chapter 40 begins. Comfort, O oh comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed. So when we come to the New Testament, there were 39 books of the Bible in the Old Testament, 
That leaves 27 for the New Testament. And the primary message of the New Testament is love, grace, salvation, and the fulfillment of those things in the person of Jesus Christ. In summary, we learn that the book of Isaiah is important to study because its words and message are woven throughout the New Testament. The book parallels the entirety of scripture and is kind of like a mini Bible within the Bible. And in it, we learn that God is both the judge and the savior. With that 40,000 foot view in mind, let's narrow our focus down a little bit and examine the book itself. Now, we're fortunate as a church to be reminded of this often, not only by Pastor Chris, but also by our guest speakers. But when we approach the Bible to study it and to learn from it, so many people want to just simply say, well, what does this mean for me? Just tell me what I need to know and what I need to do with my life so I can move on. But that's the wrong starting point. Before we can apply scripture, we have to understand the who, the what, the when, the where, and the why that the message that who was originally given was about. So if you open up your copies of the scripture to Isaiah chapter one, we're gonna dive into those questions in the following order. Let me read verse one. Isaiah chapter one, verse one. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So the first question is who? Who is the author of this book? Well, it tells us, not only in the title of the book, but right at the beginning, this is, these are the words of Isaiah. Isaiah comes from the masculine Hebrew word meaning salvation of the Lord. It's taken from the Hebrew phrase isheau, meaning God saves it tells us further that he was the son of Amos, and this is important because this establishes that he had connection or ties to the royal family, to the kings that he was speaking of. His father, Amos, and King Amaziah, who ruled right before King Uzziah, were brothers, which made him the nephew of a king and first cousins with King Uzziah. But most importantly, if you study chapter six, you learn that Isaiah was a man after God's own heart. Because when Isaiah got a glimpse of the glory of God, he recognized himself for who he was and said, woe is me, for I am lost. And he was willing to do whatever the Lord asked of him when he said, here am I, send me. Our hearts cry as a church and as a people should be Lord, Help us be more like Isaiah. Then we want to establish the when and the where. Verse 1 tells us that it's in the days of King Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Chapter 6 also tells us that Isaiah began his prophecy and ministry in the year of King Uzziah's death. And it continues through the end of King Hezekiah's reign. You might recognize these four kings' names from the genealogy in Matthew chapter 1 because Christ is a direct descendant from the kingly line of David as was promised in Jeremiah 23 verse 5. 
this book happens after the nation of Israel was divided into two kingdoms. Now this part might seem a little academic and lectury, and I apologize if it does, but I do think it's important for us to understand where we are at in the Old Testament timeline. So hopefully you're able to grab one of these on your way in. I'm going to refer to it. Um, you're welcome to take it home. It's a great tool just to kind of give a visual as to when events in the, New Test or the Old Testament occur when they do. Remember, for much of the Old Testament, when you hear the term or the phrase, the nation of Israel, it's referring to the 12 tribes or the 12 sons of Jacob. But after King David and King Solomon, the kingdom of Israel became divided. You can learn why in 1 Kings chapters 11 through 15 if you want to study the story more in depth on your own. But I'm going to attempt to give just a brief summary. King Solomon, who's here at the end of the first page, he had a servant named Jeroboam. Jeroboam was on an errand for the king when he met the prophet Ahijah, who told him that God was going to give him, a servant of the king, authority over ten of the twelve tribes of Israel. When Solomon learned of the prophecy, he sought to have his servant killed, but Jeroboam fled to Egypt for safety. When Solomon died, his son Rehoboam rightfully inherited the throne. Jeroboam, the servant, returned from Egypt and led a group of people to confront King Rehoboam with a demand for a lighter tax burden. Rehoboam refused the demand, and ten of the twelve tribes rejected Rehoboam and David's dynasty, and Ahijah's prophecy was fulfilled because the northern ten tribes crowned a servant, Jeroboam, as their king. And this king, Jeroboam, further consolidated his power. He instituted a form of calf worship unique to his kingdom and declared that pilgrimages to Jerusalem, the holy city, were no longer necessary. In effect, the people of the northern ten tribes were now cut off and were to have no contact with the southern tribes of Judah and Benjamin. So to recap, when we come to Isaiah, which is down a little bit further, the kingdom has been divided. There are 10 tribes, and every point moving forward in the Old Testament, those 10 tribes are referred to now as Israel. So when you hear that, just think of the northern 10 tribes. They're no longer ruled by a king descended from the line of David. And we have the southern kingdom, Judah, two tribes made up of Judah and Benjamin, which are ruled by kings descended from David that was promised in Jeremiah 23.5. And I want to take just a brief moment and highlight the importance of the tribe or the nation of Judah throughout history. If you want, you can flip back to Genesis chapter 49. We're going to look at one quick passage in Genesis and one quick passage in Revelation. Genesis 49, verse 8. Judah, your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. And then verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Then if you go all the way back to the book of Revelation in chapter 5, I'm just going to highlight one verse. 
Isaiah, or Revelation 5, verse 5. One of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. The nation of Judah plays a very important part in God's plan of reconciliation and redemption of the world that was broken in the Garden of Eden. And we see that play out through all of scripture until one day in the future, the tribe, the Lion of Judah, will conquer. And Isaiah's primary ministry of prophecy is to this southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah through which Jesus Christ would be born. So then we want to look at what. What was this book about? Verse 1 tells us that it's the vision of Isaiah. If you look over in chapter 2, verse 1, it tells us it's the word that Isaiah saw. Visions are supernatural revelations that reveal the glory of God to man. And the word that Isaiah saw includes predictions or prophecies about what is to come. Now, prophecy can be one of the more difficult subjects in Scripture to understand. And if we're not careful, it can lead to contention and division in the church. A biblical scholar that I've always admired is Warren Wiersbe. And at a pastor's conference in Moody in 1978, he began a lecture on prophecy by saying the following. I used to know a lot more about Bible prophecy than I do now. And then he continued on with the following. And he said, the purpose of prophecy in the church today is not to entertain the curious, but to encourage the consecrated. Now, we're not going to do a deep dive into all the prophecies in the book of Isaiah. But if you study them on your own, we would do well to consider the following points. Prophecy in the Old Testament was a combination of forthtelling or things that were going to happen in the very near or immediate future. At the same time, it was also a foretelling about things that were going to happen in the far off or distant future. Expressed in another way, this is also known as near, far prophecy. Meaning that the message that the prophet had was meant and intended for the audience at the time. And they would often see a fulfillment of it in the very near or immediate future. But at the same time, often unknowingly to that audience, he was foretelling about what was to come and how the prophecy would be fulfilled in the future. You can see examples of this if you study the prophecies to King Ahaz in chapters 7 through 9 and King Hezekiah in chapters 36 through 39. When we study prophecy, there's a great article from the Gospel Coalition which highlights the important lessons that we must remember. And that's that we need to use a strong theological lens as well as appropriate grammatical and historical lenses. Prophecy is not an invitation to allegory or a reason to search for hidden spiritual meanings like Super Mario hunts for hidden mushrooms. But it does mean that we should, just like the New Testament writers did, we need to read the Bible across the whole Bible. We need to read the beginning in light of the end, and we need to read the end in light of the beginning. We need to see Jesus 
throughout the scripture. And finally, we want to ask ourselves why. To answer that question, we're going to turn back to chapter 1 and we're going to go through verses 2 through 19. When we come to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah starts out in chapters 1 through 5 are a foretelling, something that's going to happen in the near or immediate future, or a description that the kingdom of Judah would find itself in after the invasion of King Nebuchadnezzar which led the nation of Judah into the Babylonian exile. The kingdom of Judah at this point in time was starting to follow in the apostasy footsteps of the northern ten tribes, who, as we will see, are going to fall into captivity very soon. To finish up today, I want to look at four specific reasons why this book was written by looking through verses 2 through 19. If you want to take notes, here are the four reasons summarized. The book of Isaiah was written to warn against rebellion. The book of Isaiah was written to warn against worthless worship. Number three, the book of Isaiah was written to warn against misplaced trust. And number four, the book of Isaiah was written with exhortations to repentance. Let's look at the text. Isaiah 1, verses 2 through 4. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. These verses tell us that the people of Judah had rebelled, forsaken, and despised the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. Pay special attention to that phrase. If you study the book of Isaiah on your own, highlight it whenever you come across it. That phrase, the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, is used 25 times in the book of Isaiah. And it's only found elsewhere twice in scripture. So it's an important part of what Isaiah is trying to communicate to the nation of Judah. Verse three, he tells us that even an ox and a donkey... Everyone loves to be referred to as that, right? Even an ox and a donkey, two of the most stubborn animals in existence, they're still smart enough to know who feeds them and where they can lay their heads and sleep in comfort at night. Isaiah continues on in verses five through nine and says the following. Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners, 
And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Isaiah continues on addressing the nation of Judah and he asks almost derisively, almost mockingly, haven't you suffered enough? Remember your time as slaves in Egypt. Remember the years you spent wandering in the desert. Remember the judges that I had to send upon your nation to judge you time after time. Yet you continue to rebel. The people of Judah had rebelled, forsaken, and despised the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. For the second reason why this book was written, let's continue on in chapter 1 and look at verses 10 through 15. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings, of rams, and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Isaiah tells us in these verses that the people of Judah were engaged in worthless worship. But you might ask, wait a second, wasn't God the one who put these feasts and festivals in place? Wasn't he the one that said, without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sin, so there must be sacrifices made to atone for your sins? So why is he sick of them? Because quite simply, church, God cannot separate the act of worship from the heart and actions of the worshiper. You see, the people of Judah, they were engaged in all of the rituals that God had commanded of them. But their day-to-day -day routines revealed that their hearts and actions were far from the heart of the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. The nation of Judah was engaged in worthless worship. The third reason the book was written was to condemn Judah and specifically her kings for making alliances with other nations to try and protect and preserve the nation of Judah instead of trusting the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, to do what he promised all the way back in Genesis 17 when he made his covenant with Abraham. If you're not familiar with that passage, it's a great passage. It's one worth studying. God's promise and covenant with Abraham. This sin of misplaced trust by Judah's kings plays a key role in the nation of Judah falling 
into exile. When we come to the book of Isaiah, simply put, the nation of Judah was in a mess. And their kings were driving them towards an even bigger mess. But in the midst of that mess, a messenger comes and brings a message of hope. Because finally, church, the book of Isaiah is written with repeated exhortations and appeals for the people of Judah to turn from their rebellion, to turn from their worthless worship, turn from their failure to trust the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. Let's look at verses 16 through 19 in chapter 1. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. In the middle of a dark chapter, describing the devastating state that the nation of Judah would find itself in, we see an invitation to repentance and a promise to restoration. God miraculously and graciously offers hope to these rebellious people, promising them a cleansing of their sins and the blessing that comes only through faith and obedience to him. Verse 19 ends this way. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. Church, that very same God, the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, miraculously and graciously extends and offers that same hope to you and to I. The benefit that we have that the nation of Judah did not is we have a historical biblical account that's verified by other historical sources of a man named Jesus who claimed to be the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. And because of that claim, he was crucified on a cross, buried, and rose again. And in Romans chapter 10, verses 8 and 9, it tells us this. The word is near you in your heart and in your mouth. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Sweet mercy. Had to get one in. Love you, Chris. To close, I want to go to Isaiah chapter 12, which many consider to be the central theme passage of this book and one that I believe is worth memorizing together as families and as a church body. In Isaiah 11 and 12, the prophet again takes a pause between the dark proclamations of judgment in chapters 1 through 10 and chapters 13 through 39. If you want some heavy reading, chapters 13 through 39 aren't very much fun to read. It's a lot of woes unto you. But it's there and it's important for us to study. But in chapters 11 and 12, he takes a pause from all that 
and he points to the still coming day of the Lord and a future hope that the nation of Judah already has secured for them by the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. In chapters 11 and 12, he paints a beautiful picture of a time when Israel, the northern kingdom, and Judah, the southern kingdom, will be reunited, as well as a remnant from all nations who have repented and turned from their sin. And they will experience a peace like the world hasn't known since the Garden of Eden, where it will be proclaimed in that day from Isaiah chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turn away, that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid, for the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. Church, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the words of the prophet Isaiah. Lord, I thank you for your holiness. I thank you that as a holy God, even though we rebel and our hearts can be far from you, you miraculously and graciously extend to us offers of repentance and restoration so that we can commune with you in fellowship. Lord, that is indeed a sweet mercy. Thank you for sending your son to die on the cross and rise again to pay for the price of our sins. We love you, Lord, and we thank you in your name. Amen.